this is Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes and I run the lift. It's a very busy time of year and there's lots to do, but someone out there, you know who you are, asked me to say hello. Naughty. So hello and Merry Christmas to everyone who listens to the lift and history goes bump. We hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Now, I'm off to visit some old man named Scrooge who is going to have quite a surprise when he rides my lift. <laughs> Tempting spirits, especially at Christmas, is not a good idea. It tends to make them rather angry. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, and welcome to our very special Christmas episode for Season 2 of The Lift. If you haven't heard our Christmas episode from last season, I do encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's called 312 Noel. And there are some plot points in that story that tie into today's story, which is written by the same author. Since this is our last show of the year, and it's also the holiday season, I'd like to ask the long-term listeners, the fans of the show, for your help. When we created the show, we started out with all of our authors, artists, and composers donating their work to the show. Everybody saw something that you guys see, which is a great show, a great character, a really cool, creepy universe to play in and write some really great stories. For 2017, our goal is to start to reward the authors, the artists, and the composers who make this show possible. Without the writers, without the composers, without the artists, this show would not be possible. In order to do that, we only need to get to $550 a month. There are currently about 16,000 of you that listen to the show, so I think that's totally doable. I read so many great reviews from you guys on iTunes, and it just means the world to us to know that this show means something to you and that it's something that you look forward to and want to see continue. So if you do listen, if you do see value to the show, if it entertains you, if it's something you look forward to, it gets you through your day, it gets you through your commute, it makes it easier for you to work out at the gym, Wherever and however you listen, if it's something that you'd like to see continue, you can support the show for as little as $2 a month. On up from there, you can be as generous as you like. We do give away some really great rewards, but most importantly, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping us take care of those folks that make sure you have fun. If you'd like to help us out, our Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Thanks so much to all of you who support us. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and let today's author, Chuck Rackage, say hello, and we're going to get right into the story. Thanks so much for being a part of this amazing adventure with us and for all your support and help. Hi, this is Chuck Rackage. I'm the writer for today's Lift episode, The Promise. If you enjoyed today's story, you can find more of my work on The Lift as well as its companion podcast, The Wicked Library. 
find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. By the way, today's visitor to the building and those of my other Lift tales are all major characters in the novel that I hope to finish someday soon. I think Victoria would like that particular story. I have lost so much. My name is Victoria. I am bound to this place, charged with guiding those who must choose. Don't be afraid. I can never again be the little girl I was. Will you accept your fate or change it? I have my music box and a library lost, but I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes seldom dreams. At least, she seldom remembers dreaming. Like all of us, she sleeps, but not in the same manner as you and I do. For her, it is something quite different, a strange and unearthly experience. Still, this is what she calls this incredibly foreign state of mind, sleep. As with normal individuals, the sweet blessedness of repose is a rare and precious commodity when you're chronologically 124 years old, especially if you remain physically locked in the body of a nine-year-old English girl. This scarcity of slumber no doubt accounts in part for the paucity of her dreams. The few nocturnal excursions she does recall tend to replay bittersweet memories of her short life. However, Victoria's subconscious occasionally explores future lives that failed to unfold, those of a pre-adolescent, a teenager, and a young woman. Still, she endures, trapped as a child in a life not quite lived, and yet one not entirely annulled by the dark specter of death. For her, that passage is mysteriously held at bay by an omnipotent and benign force. This morning, Victoria awoke, if that's what the extraordinary transition can truly be called, only to find herself happily humming a tune she'd long forgotten. Now, wherever did that come from? She wondered, frustrated at her inability to place the hauntingly familiar melody's origin. I shall be driven mad if I can't remember the source of that lovely ditty, Victoria said as she prepared for the day. The silly piece played on and on in her head, annoying in its repetitiveness, but somehow comforting. The tune gave her a buoyant feeling, an oddly euphoric sense of anticipation that she hadn't felt since... Josh? Startled, she said the name aloud a second time. Josh, how could I have ever forgotten sweet, adorable Josh Conway? Victoria asked herself. The first boy to kiss her. A quick peck on the cheek on her eighth birthday. That handsome young boy 
with the easygoing smile and infectious laugh. Her first crush. A contented sigh escaped her. She couldn't help but smile, thinking of the sandy-haired, blue-eyed boy four years her senior. When she was seven, he arrived with his wealthy parents to live in this building for two years while their new home was put under construction. Yes, yes, Victoria said as she closed the door to her room and hurried down the hall toward her beloved lift. Their home. No, a mansion. I remember now. She slipped into a trot. It was to be built not far from Solitude, the Westinghouse mansion. She found herself running. Yes, and only two blocks away from Clayton, the Frick's palatial estate. Her Mary Jane's ground to a halt on the carpeted floor. Victoria caught her breath. Why this odd compulsion to hurry? Surely there is no need to go dashing about in a mad tizzy. She took another breath and strode the last few yards to the lift. Much better, old girl. Take it nice and easy. No need to rush. She resisted the urge to quicken her pace and entered the lift. Josh even said he would return Christmas week to take me for a ride on his little motorbike and visit his family's new home. How could I have forgotten? The lift's manually operated doors slid closed by themselves. What in the world? The lift descended toward the lobby. She grabbed the control lever and pushed it to the stop position without effect. The lift continued its downward journey. This thing is acting on its own! A green light glowed inside the indicator marked number one, and the lift halted. Victoria grasped the door opener, but it wouldn't budge. A roaring noise arose in the lobby, like the sound of a high-speed engine. The roar grew louder. It revved several times, dropped to a staccato putter, coughed once, and drew silent. Victoria's neck hair stood on end. The doors slid open. A man, dressed all in black, sat on a large Kelly Green motorcycle and sidecar, parked in the middle of the lobby. He stared at her, while the building's air, tinged with the faint odor of exhaust fumes, carried the soft pinging sounds of the cooling engine. Backlit by shafts of sunlight streaming through the open doors, it was impossible for Victoria to see the man's face. The lobby doors closed, reducing the glare. At that moment, Victoria missed the comforting presence of her music box. She willed it to appear, but failed. Perplexed, her apprehension grew, facing this strange interloper alone. The man swung his right leg off the motorcycle. He removed his goggles and old-style aviator's helmet and glanced around the lobby. His face was still masked in shadow, but she could tell his wavy hair was a sandy gray color. Removing his leather gloves, he tossed them in his headgear into the sidecar. He brushed some dust from his trousers, then spoke. Hello, Vicky. Oh, I'm sorry. Victoria. He bowed and gave a gentle laugh. <laughs> I guess I'm just a bit late. His mellow voice should have calmed Victoria. Instead, her arms prickled with goosebumps. Why are you here and who are you? She said, surprised at the quaver in her voice. 
How did you find this place and gain entry? Individuals called to the building were the ones confused about being here, not her. This one hadn't been called. He simply came. Worse, the normal flow of life experience and information on visitors was gone. The source was silent. Answer me. Why did you come here? Because it's finally time. Time? Victoria had had quite enough of this nonsense. She balled her little hands into fists and stomped out of the lift. You can jolly well take your notions of time and ride your silly machine right out of here. The very nerve. She pointed at the doorway. I believe you know the way out. Even better than you can apparently realize. Enough! You have no business here! She shook a defiant fist at him. I demand that you vacate these premises. Now why on earth would you want me to do that, Vicky? It's Victoria, not Vicky, as you already... Wait, how did you know that? He crossed his arms and laughed. <laughs> Picky Vicky, sweet and tricky, keeps her questions downright dippy. The taunt startled Victoria, unleashing a flood of childhood memories. A thousand questions came to mind. Only one reached her lips. Josh Conway? Yes, Victoria, it's me. Again, I must apologize for being late. The lobby's lights came on, and Victoria gazed at the man standing before her. He was not the boy she fondly recalled. This Josh was much older than she could ever have imagined. Sixty? No, sixty-five, perhaps? Her own chronologic age should have prepared her for the shock of encountering a long-lost friend. But it hadn't. Fittingly, his young looks had morphed into something reminiscent of a certain dashing movie star from the 1940s. What was that actor's name? William Powell, Josh said to her surprise. Popular leading man of the Thin Man movies. You... you read my mind? No... Not quite. I read your face. He laughed and unzipped his black leather jacket. <laughs> I saw that same look on women's faces many times over the years. It was a blessing and yeah, a curse for someone in my profession. Setting the jacket aside revealed his black shirt with a bit of white showing at the collar. Victoria gasped. The collar of a Catholic priest. I can't believe you grew up and entered the seminary of all things. The tragedy that befell you and this building in 1901 had a devastating effect on me. All of my beliefs were shattered. Oddly, it took a stint in the army and the greater tragedy of World War I to turn things around. Somehow, I was drawn to the priesthood. He bowed again. Father Joshua Conway, at your service. My friends called me Father Josh, and- Wait, you said called, not call. Why the past tense? This is the 21st century, correct? Oh, how foolish of me. You'd be at least 128 years old if you were still alive. Exactly. Father Josh motioned toward the sidecar. Why don't you have a seat while we talk? All right. She agreed with a touch of excitement. 
I never rode in one of these. Or, for the matter, on your little motorbike when you promised to return and take me on a holiday visit to your parents' new mansion. That's one reason why I'm here now, he said, taking her hand to help her settle. You finally kept your promise. That is so for... Victoria's breath caught, and she shook a finger at Father Josh. Wait just one minute. Only the living visit this lost place, not the dead. How did you manage that? I could claim it's a trade secret, Father Josh said, walking the motorcycle around to face away from the lift. But that wouldn't be fair. Especially since, as you told a friend of mine, we two are so very much alike. You knew her? Renata, the time-traveling German spy and assassin? Father Josh swung himself onto the driver's seat. Make that former spy and ex-assassin. He took a pipe and tobacco pouch from his pocket. After Renata's visit here, she chose correctly, if a bit tardily. But thanks to you, he paused, filling the pipe with cherry-scented tobacco. He lit the pipe bowl, then inhaled. She accomplished some good things. He punctuated the last word with a perfect smoke ring. Fine, but you still didn't answer my original question, which is quite infuriating. A reaction you always enjoyed provoking in me. And you failed to explain why we are so very much alike. And how you know all these things. I demand a full response. And you shall have it. He took a thoughtful puff. A year before my scheduled retirement in 1953, I petitioned the bishop to allow me to spend my final 12 months doing missionary work in a South Korean orphanage. The war there was nearly over, and the need was so great among the thousands of homeless and parentless children suffering throughout that divided land. It took some doing, but the bishop finally agreed. Soon after, I caught a ride with the Red Cross team on a UN-sponsored relief flight. I was stationed at an orphanage in a village just south of the 38th parallel. North Korean landmines and booby traps had been planted near the orphanage. The Marines swept the area and removed the mines. The problem is, Father Josh took another puff. They missed one. Oh no! Victoria raised a hand to her mouth. You stepped on it. Exactly. I heard the sickening click of a pressure relief detonator. If I kept my foot on it, it wouldn't explode. The nuns cleared the children out and called the Marines back. They were only a couple miles away when I suffered a heart attack. I remember a sharp pain and grabbing my chest. Then I was falling forward. I never heard the explosion. Just the sensation of falling and falling. Victoria gasped. Much as I did. Yes. Then I found myself in a state like yours. Only I wasn't tied down to a single place. He struck a second match, ready to relight his pipe. People are called to you in this place. They come as visitors. But in my case, I am called to visit them. Unfortunately, I don't have easy access to a source of information like you do. The match burned ever closer to the priest's fingertips. Quite often, I'm forced to do a bit of, well, let's call it detective work to compensate. At the last moment, and to Victoria's great relief, 
he waved the flame out and dropped the spent match into a pocket. Although our work is similar, you have greater access to knowledge of the individual's lives. But I have greater mobility to meet them when and where they live. But the source never revealed what had happened to you. In fact... She paused, drumming her tiny fingers on the sidecar's rim. In fact, it has never mentioned you. Not once. Almost like you never existed. I'd forgotten all about you. That is, until I woke this morning with a silly little tune running around inside my head. Ah. Anything like this? <clears throat> Come away with me, Lucille. In my merry Oldsmobile, down the road of life we'll fly, automobumbling you and I, and so on. Yes, that's the tune. Father Josh coughed, and his face reddened. Sorry, singing's not my specialty. You used to whistle it all the time, but there were no words back then. One of my father's friends was a New York tunesmith who played that melody on our grand piano once. Father Josh struck another match and held it near his pipe without inhaling. Naturally, the catchy little ditty stuck in my head, too. Several years after you vanished, another friend wrote the lyrics, and it became a big hit. But how could I forget you in that silly melody? Even as she spoke, Victoria's gaze returned to the burning match. Mesmerized, she watched it grow shorter by the second. The smell of charred flesh was sure to follow. You forgot, because you were supposed to forget, until now. You had important work here, and you've made an exemplary job of it. Anything related to me would have been a terrible distraction, and, unable to restrain herself, Victoria leaned over and blew out the match. Smoke that miserable pipe or stop lighting those bloody matches before you burn your blooming fingers, she said in a huff then realized what she had said, and to whom. Oh, I'm so sorry, speaking like that. Please, uh, please forgive me. Father Conway laughed. <laughs> I've heard worse from those younger than you. However, that was a perfect example of how a simple distraction can derail you. Victoria crossed her arms and scowled. Huh, that was a nasty little trick to play. You always did enjoy beastly things of that sort. I can't imagine why I ever had a crush on you. I'm sorry, but I had to make the point. He tucked the pipe into a pocket and grinned. A crush, huh? Don't let that go to your head, Mr. Spitting Image of a Movie Star. But you were just a kid. And so were you. Yes, I was. Way back then. But you still are. I am quite painfully aware of that fact, thank you very much, Victoria said, her eyes brimming with moisture. He laid a hand on her shoulder. And that, my dear friend, is another reason I'm here. I have no idea what you mean by that. As you once said, and I quote, there are choices to be made. Today for tomorrow, tomorrow for yesterday, and both for eternity. You have greater access to the source than you let on. Or you've planted listening devices. Father Josh laughed. <laughs> Neither is the case. Renata mentioned it. Outside of the seal of confession, by the way. 
With that, he maneuvered the motorcycle backward into the lift, pushing with his feet, careful not to bump against the brass door jams. Right now, we need to go for a ride, and you have a choice to make. Victoria raised an eyebrow. Well, that's a switch. Just what sort of choice? Father Josh studied the control panel's buttons and said, This is a very lonely and confining existence you lead, all because you were denied a chance to live the normal life that was your due. Victoria sniffed, wiping the back of a hand on her cheeks. I managed to get by all right, usually. She sniffed again and said, But there are times when, when things become unbearable. I, I'm awake full of dread and loathing. Still there are times... When it all seems worthwhile. Yes, but even more, those are the times where it seems my life was preordained that this... She waved a hand at the lift walls. This was the only way things can and should be for me. At least for now. That has always been a frightening yet empowering thought. It may sound silly, but... I often wish the decision for things to be this way had been mine. A gentle smile graced Father Josh's lips. Well, now it can be, he said, and pressed button number nine. How is that possible? Victoria asked. You forget that those in my profession have friends in high places, Father Josh said with a glance at the ceiling. You mean you've been given the power to do that? Hardly. But I'm permitted to make the choice available to you. Victoria stood, clasped her hands together, and jumped up and down in the sidecar. The very idea is... is wonderful. No, make that marvelous, stupendous, and fantastic all rolled into one. She continued bouncing, making the sidecar into a trampoline. <laughs> take it easy, girl. This old motorcycle springs won't take much more of your enthusiasm. I'm so sorry, she said, dropping onto the seat out of breath. My pent-up emotions got the best of me. It was the very thought of living a normal life away from this dreadful place. And I'd never have to come back here again, right? That's right. No more dark, musty hallways, cobwebs, bone-chilling drafts, or creaky doors? Yes, exactly. None of that. And I would no longer have to deal with any of those nasty visitors destined for the basement? Correct. Victoria let out a joyous squeal. <laughs> this is such a marvelous opportunity, and I can hardly believe it's for real. She grabbed Father Josh's forearm. It is for real, right? This isn't one of your little boy tricks, is it? My dear friend, I could never trick you about something so serious. Good. I needed to be certain. Victoria grinned, put her little feet upon the sidecar's dash, leaned back, and pointed at the lift's ceiling. Just think, I'll never have to take another visitor for a ride. Victoria hesitated. A ride up there to make a choice. Her voice trailed off. She let her hand drop onto her lap and sat upright. Oh my, I've concentrated so much on my own situation that I've forgotten about those troubled individuals who are yet to visit this place. What would become of them? Victoria asked shivering from a sudden draft. That's something I'm not privy to. Father Josh draped his jacket over Victoria's shoulders 
since you and I are both in the same sort of endeavor, it's reasonable to assume there are others. One would probably take your place. Can we be certain? Unfortunately, life itself is an uncertainty. It's not very helpful. I'm afraid you're right, but it's the reality of things. The elevator dinged. Indicator number nine lit up, but the door remained closed. Earlier you mentioned one possible exception. Yes. In accepting this assignment, I was required to choose one of your previous visitors who would be required to face their moral dilemma once more, but without your assistance. Whatever the result, it's a no-lose situation for you. The guarantee of a normal life. But there's a serious trade-off, isn't there? I gain something, no matter the outcome. However, one person must face the possibility of losing their very life in the process. Victoria slumped in her seat. That is a heavy burden to bear. Indeed. But those are the terms. It's a difficult choice. But I sought to tip the scales to favor both you and the visitor in question. How could you possibly do that? I picked someone I knew. You mean Renada? Father Josh laughed. <laughs> Considering what's at stake, I needed to choose someone of strong character and high moral fiber. Renata only fulfilled the first of those two criteria. Then who is it? I'm not at liberty to say. However... Well, that's a nasty little complication, isn't it? Victoria crossed her arms. How can I possibly accept those terms without knowing whom I would put at risk? You didn't let me finish. I was about to say I'm permitted to give you a clue. A clue? Tell me. A number. Actually, the digits for a particular number you must rearrange to... You're giving me a puzzle to solve at a time like this. Victoria stood and shook her fist at Father Josh. That's not fair. Now, take it easy, Victoria. Calm down. I've cut corners and made the solution as simple as possible. <laughs> I'll just wager you have, she said in a huff. Father Josh audibly mumbled. May the good Lord forgive me for stacking the deck in your favor. Then he held up a folded purple card embossed with a large V. You merely need to move one numeral two places and everything will fall into place. I promise. He winked. Very well. She sat down. What are the digits? Father Josh handed her the purple card. She read the numerals out loud. One, two, and three. Good. There are only six possible permutations. How many chances do I get? Just one. One chance in six? Wait. You said move a single digit two places, correct? Yes. That leaves only a pair of possibilities. Perhaps I shall succeed. Pondering, Victoria moved the one numeral back two places. Two, three, one. But the number meant nothing. Starting over, she imagined the three ahead of the others. Three, twelve. Three, twelve. Now why does that number seem so... She let out a gasp. <gasps> That's the number that meant so much to Mr. Sherm, former U.S. Army Major Sherm McMillan. 312. That has to be the number. And Mr. Sherm must be your friend and the visitor in question. She bounced in her seat. 
I'm right. I know it. Bingo, as the church ladies would say. Oh, that was such a joyous yuletide when Mr. Sherm finally realized he was not responsible for the death of his friend, Sergeant Henderson. 312 was Henderson's favorite lottery number, and also the number of the train locomotive that Mr. Sherm found in Stanwitz and Son's window. He bought it as a Christmas gift for his late friend's widow and little boy. I know. It was their best Christmas ever. Sherm told me all about it, and his encounter with you. Knowing you were somehow still in existence gave me hope our paths would cross one day. Victoria's smile vanished. Wait, Mr. Sherm was a war hero, but there is a chance he could choose wrong and end his own life in needless despair. Have a little faith. Since you guessed correctly, I can show you what would have happened if you hadn't helped Sherm. With that, the lift doors opened, revealing the downhearted Major Sherm crossing a snow-covered street and looking at a Christmas village in the toy store's window. His breath fogged the glass while he watched an electric train circle the miniature town. Among the colorful little homes, churches, and stores, there was no hint of the exquisitely detailed model of Victoria's building he'd originally seen there. He stood gazing at the festive display as he slid a gloved hand inside his overcoat. Oh no, he's reaching for the pistol in his shoulder holster. Victoria gripped Father Josh's arm and stepped out of the sidecar. We must stop him before he shoots himself. Father Josh put a finger to his lips. Just watch. Major Sherm hesitated, then startled. He removed his hand from the overcoat and bent down his eyes following the toy steam engine's circular journey. The locomotive's number, Victoria said, pointing at the scene. He just realized it's the same number Sergeant Henderson always played. Major Sherm stood and laughed. Wiping tears, he dashed inside the store and soon emerged with a large gift wrap package the size of a train set box. Victoria yelled in joyous relief. This is wonderful, wonderful news, Victoria said, clapping her hands. Yes, and Sherm would lead the same full and rewarding life you helped him rediscover. He would have been okay. Indeed, there is no downside and nothing would be lost. Victoria stopped clapping and shuddered. No, you're wrong. She placed a hand to her lips as the realization sunk in. There would have been serious loss. For me, all the joy and goodwill I experienced that Christmas Eve because of Sherm's real choice would vanish. Lost and gone forever. Helping Mr. Sherm help me through many years dealing with visitors of this place. If I give that up, I shall be the loser. She paused and finally said, I cannot accept your generous offer. My dear old friend, you've chosen wisely. Father Josh hugged Victoria and kissed the top of her head. Your encounter with Sherm was destined to occur as it did, for your benefit as much as his, perhaps even more so for you right now. But as we just saw, Mr. Sherm really didn't need any help. That's far from true. Sherm never would have known Sergeant Henderson was already mortally wounded. That would have troubled Sherm throughout his life. And I never would have learned of your continued existence. Father Josh tapped the purple card in Victoria's hand. 
plus, Sherm was in dire need of the one thing you so freely gave him that cold winter's night. Go ahead. Look on the other side. Victoria turned the card over. There, in her own flowing handwriting, was a simple message. Happy Christmas, Mr. Sherm. Love, Victoria. <laughs> she sniffed, rubbed her closed eyes, and said, Did you just come here to make me cry like a baby? No. I came to keep a promise. We're having Christmas dinner at my parents' new home. Father Josh's voice sounded different, perhaps even younger. Victoria's eyes snapped open. She could hardly believe the sight. The priest of 65 was gone. In his place was a young Josh Conway, 19 years old, dressed in a dapper tweed jacket with matching knickerbockers and long wool socks. On his head, a green tam o'shanter tipped at a jaunty angle. She glanced at her own reflection in the lift's polished brass walls. Staring back at her was a young lass, maybe 17, wearing a beautiful purple gown, black high-button women's shoes with heels and a fur-trimmed coat. Perched on her head was a purple and black lady's touring hat held in place with a lavender silk ribbon tied beneath her chin. The motorcycle and sidecar morphed into a simple black motorcycle, while outside the lift, the toy store scene dissolved into an early 20th century street paved with Belgian blocks. Josh bowed, offering Victoria his arm. Shall we be off, mademoiselle? Christmas dinner awaits. He helped her onto the motorbike's side saddle rear seat, then mounted the front seat and kick-started the motor. Hold on tight, he warned, as they drove out onto Pittsburgh's Penn Avenue, gaily lined with multicolored Edison lights strung from lampposts and phone poles. That night, nine-year-old Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes fell happily into bed. She had a tummy full of roast goose, chestnut stuffing, candied yams, and home-baked mincemeat pie. With a contented smile on her pretty face and her beloved music box tucked under her arm, she closed her eyes and dreamed dreams. Dreams she would remember. Merry Christmas, Victoria. And Merry Christmas to everyone listening. A big thank you to all of you for listening to the show. 
to all of you who take the time to rate and review the show in iTunes and Stitcher and every place else, and to all of our Patreon supporters. Without your generous contributions, it would be nearly impossible to put this show together. Full show notes with credits, links, and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com. We make other podcasts you might enjoy. Check out thewickedlibrary.com and also ninthstory.com for links to other shows. If you're on social media, you can check us out on Facebook and also on Twitter. And if you'd like to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the show, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, lots of places. 